It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and sexuality that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. On December 7, 1988... 32-year-old Bonnie Lee Bakley and 81-year-old DeMart Besley entered the bonds of holy matrimony in a casino chapel in Elko, Nevada. Besley didn't know it at the time, but he was Bonnie's fourth husband. His new bride took a trip down the aisle no more seriously than a weekend getaway. They had met through a personal ad in the back of an adult magazine in 1984, exchanging letters and phone calls. Besley sent money when she needed help, and Bonnie sent him nude photos in return. In December of 1988, Bonnie took a bus to Besley's home in Montana and insisted they get married. She didn't sleep with anyone she wasn't married or engaged to. The couple drove to Nevada the next morning and tied the knot. Shortly after they exchanged vows, Besley handed Bonnie a roll of nickels for the slot machines. He never saw her again. At first, he didn't want to believe that Bonnie had left him so coldly. He waited around for a day, hoping she'd reappear, but eventually realized he'd been duped. When he returned home, he discovered Bonnie had stolen his gun and his late wife's jewelry. A few weeks after ditching him at the altar, Bonnie sent Besley a letter expressing how much she loved him. Then, in the P.S., she asked him to send her a copy of his VA paperwork so she could register for military wife benefits. Instead, Besley arranged for the marriage to be annulled. But Bonnie continued to send letters for weeks. In one, she admitted, quote, I'm afraid that when we meet, you're going to beat me up because of all the terrible things I've done to you. Someday, someone may take revenge against me. She was right. But when that revenge eventually came, it wouldn't be at Besley's hands. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. Last week, we followed the LAPD investigation into Bonnie Lee Bakley's murder on May 4, 2001, and how the evidence collected led them to charge Robert Blake and Earl Caldwell, 
This week, we'll see how the evidence was presented to the jury and understand how they reached their verdict. We'll also examine the civil charges brought against Blake by Bakley's four children. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. After an 11-month-long investigation into Bonnie's murder on May 4, 2001, the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office brought charges against Bonnie's husband of six months, the 68-year-old actor, Robert Blake, as well as Blake's bodyguard-slash-assistant, 44-year-old Earl Caldwell. On April 22, 2002, Blake was charged with one count of murder with special circumstances and two counts of solicitation of murder. Both Blake and Caldwell were charged with one count of murder conspiracy. The charges against Caldwell were eventually dropped for lack of evidence. Caldwell's wife testified that she was with him the night of the murder in San Mateo, almost 400 miles away. The murder to-do list, as police called it, was actually a handyman to-do list. For example, 25 Auto was not referring to a caliber and type of gun. It was actually a reminder for Caldwell to get his oil changed at 25,000 miles. After the conspiracy charges were dropped, Caldwell invoked his Fifth Amendment rights, refusing to testify in Robert Blake's trial. After cycling through several lawyers, Blake's trial was finally set to begin in the fall of 2004. Defending him was longtime trial lawyer M. Gerald Schwartzbach. Schwartzbach started in the Detroit Public Defender's Office before joining a firm in San Francisco in 1987. He was involved in several landmark cases that secured defendants' rights in the California legal system. It was a big change for Schwartzbach to defend a man like Robert Blake, known for his Beretta catchphrase, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Public opinion said he was guilty as sin, and Schwartzbach was usually on the side of the virtuous and true. But when he looked closely at the details of Blake's case, he was disturbed by the lack of evidence tying him to the crime. This was another little guy fighting for his rights, just with more income at his disposal. Representing the state was Deputy District Attorney Shelley Samuels. She had a near-perfect record coming into the case, winning 48 of 49 murder trials previously. In 1993, she had been named Prosecutor of the Year by the Los Angeles County Association of Deputy District Attorneys, the first woman and the first San Fernando Valley prosecutor to win the award. She had the full support and confidence of Los Angeles District Attorney Steve Cooley. In pre-trial interviews, Samuels conceded that some of the evidence against Blake was circumstantial, but felt confident the jury would agree with the state's case. On December 20, 2004, over three years and seven months after Bonnie's death, the criminal proceedings against Robert Blake began. 
Shelley Samuels opened by making sure the jury understood the charges filed against Blake. First, one count of murder with special circumstances. She explained that special circumstances are applied to murders that are particularly grievous. Samuel stated that Blake planned Bonnie's murder for months and waited for the opportune moment to strike. This constituted lying in wait and should be grounds for more severe punishment. She wanted to make sure the jury understood the gravity of the choice in their hands and the seriousness of the accusations against Blake. If they found Blake guilty, he would face life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. The second charge, two counts of solicitation of murder, carried its own three to nine year sentence. Samuels described to the jury the offers that Blake made to two stuntmen in exchange for killing his wife. She quoted their statements to police that Blake used words like pop, whack, and bump off when soliciting the men, telling one, quote, she's killing me, so I want you to kill her. Samuels paused for a moment to let Blake's callous words sink in. Then she quickly summarized for the jury, saying, quote, based on the evidence in this case, it can be proved beyond a reasonable doubt that this defendant, Robert Blake, killed Bonnie Lee Bakley. Now the jury had the duty to bring Robert Blake to justice and convict him of these charges. When it was Gerald Schwartzbach's turn to address the jury the next day, he too felt the need to explain the charges against Robert Blake. The state alleged that his client was the shooter on the night of May 4, 2001. But the fact of the matter was, there was no direct evidence to support this claim. Yes, this murder was heinous. Yes, the person who shot Bonnie deserved severe consequences, but there was no evidence to prove that Blake was responsible. Forensics found only traces of gunshot residue on his hands and clothes. They didn't find any blood spatter, which would have been present on the clothing of the person who shot Bonnie in the passenger seat of Blake's car. There were no witnesses to place him at the crime scene, police found no connection between Blake and the murder weapon. Schwartzbach argued that the state's case against his client was based entirely on the word of two stuntmen who were both heavy drug users. Both had been hospitalized for psychiatric reasons and had criminal records. The defense attorney alleged that Blake was targeted by the LAPD because of his celebrity status and that the evidence would show there was nothing to substantiate the case against him. In fact, the LAPD made numerous errors in their investigation and because of their negligence, Bonnie's true killer would never be found. Schwartzbach finished by saying, quote, at the end of this trial, the evidence will demonstrate to you the only appropriate verdicts will be not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Deputy District Attorney Shelley Samuels wanted to clearly illustrate to the jury the events of the night of May 4, 2001. So her initial witnesses on December 21, 2004 were people who were all present at the time of Bonnie's death. 
She was relying on their testimony to communicate what the evidence could not. First was Sean Stanek. Robert Blake had frantically pounded on his Studio City door in the moments after he discovered his wife had been shot. Blake demanded Stanek call 911. He testified that Blake told him, quote, you gotta help me. They beat her up. Somebody mugged us or something. Samuels asked Stanek to describe Blake's demeanor on the night of the 4th. Stanek thought Blake's grief felt contrived, like bad acting. Blake was crying hysterical, but there weren't any tears. It felt off. In fact, Stanek asked the police to search his house that night to be certain Blake didn't leave behind any evidence pertaining to the murder, but they didn't find anything. Next, Samuels brought Terry Lorenzo Castaneda to the stand. She was a nurse who was eating at Vitello's the night of the shooting. When Blake asked for medical assistance, she volunteered. On the stand, she echoed Stanek's sentiments. Terry felt that Blake's emotion wasn't genuine. When he fetched Terry from the restaurant, they had walked the block and a half back to the car, not run. He told Terry that his wife had been mugged, but hadn't mentioned she'd been shot. Though under cross-examination, Terry admitted that she herself didn't realize the full extent of Bonnie's injuries until someone turned on the light in the car. After testimony concluded on December 23rd, the proceedings recessed for the Christmas holidays. When court resumed on January 4th, 2005, Samuels produced six additional witnesses to testify to Robert Blake's demeanor the night of Bonnie's death. Four of the six made the same characterizations of his emotions, disingenuous. In addition, none of the witnesses from Vitello's could confirm that Blake returned to the restaurant during the time of the shooting. He claimed that he had left his 38 caliber gun in the booth and Bonnie was shot while he was retrieving it. None of the patrons or the staff in the restaurant at the time recalled seeing Blake get his gun. They saw him leave with Bonnie around 9.30 p.m. and then return alone less than 20 minutes later, frantically calling for a doctor. Samuels stressed to the jury, Robert Blake had no alibi. Coming up, the defense accuses the LAPD of misconduct, and the jury gets a first-hand look at the crime scene. Now back to the story. 72-year-old Robert Blake stood trial for the murder of 44-year-old Bonnie Lee Bakley in early 2005, nearly four years after her death. Deputy District Attorney Shelley Samuels walked the jury through the state's evidence, explaining how Robert Blake had first tried to solicit two men to whack his new bride, then eventually committed the act himself. Samuels summoned to the stand four of the police officers who had worked the crime scene and also collected evidence from Blake's home the day after the murder. She asked each one to describe their impressions of the crime scene. Detective Samer E. Issa stated that Blake was very emotional and blamed himself for what had happened, claiming that someone had come after Bonnie in the past. Blake had told Issa at one point that he knew something like this was going to happen. 
Samuels asked Issa to speculate on why Blake would say something like this. Issa believed that from the moment Bonnie was killed, Blake was trying to reinforce the narrative that it was the work of a jilted, lonely heart. Detective James Golaz, a 25-year veteran of the LAPD's Robbery Homicide Division, testified that he went to Blake's house early in the morning on May 5th, 2001, to collect the clothing Blake had worn the night before. When tested, the clothing showed trace amounts of gunshot residue, but not amounts that were significant enough to suggest that he had fired a gun. When Shelley Samuels asked what might account for trace amounts like that, it was suggested that the clothing may have been washed between the time of the crime and the next morning. Attorney Gerald Schwartzbach pounced on Detective Golaz in cross-examination. He first asked him if he had a warrant to collect the clothing. Golaz didn't recall seeing a physical warrant, but he'd been dispatched by the lead detective on the case to collect the items and therefore assumed that a warrant had been obtained. But in fact, Schwartzbach pointed out, the search warrant for Blake's clothes was not signed until 4.15 p.m., many hours after Golaz's visit. He then asked Golaz to describe the method in which the clothing was collected for evidence. The officer conceded that he put Blake's clothes in a lidless cardboard box that he'd found in the police squad room that morning. He had also stored the open box of clothes in the trunk of his car over the weekend. Because he kept other firearms in the trunk, it was possible that the clothing had picked up trace elements and therefore registered small amounts of gunshot residue. Schwartzbach asked why Blake's clothing had all been placed together in one box instead of in individual plastic bags per police procedure. Was Golaz aware that gunshot residue can transfer from one item to another? He was. Was he aware that the purpose of collecting the items was so that they could be tested for forensic evidence? Golaz said yes. And knowing that he was going to Blake's house to collect these items, he declined to bring separate packaging for separate items? That was correct. Schwartzbach was relentless, asking Golaz if he was even certain that the clothing he'd collected on the morning of May 5th, 2001 was in fact the clothing that Blake had worn the night before. He was not. Schwartzbach confirmed, quote, so are you saying that even if he had come home from the police station, taken a shower, changed clothes, and put on totally new clothing fresh out of the laundry, you would have seized that clothing?" End quote. Golaz admitted that he never verbally confirmed with Blake that the clothing he collected was the same as he was wearing the night before. Golaz said, quote, I just hoped and assumed that it was the same clothing. End quote. Schwartzbach fired back, quote, Well, I just hope and assume that if I'm a suspect in a crime, the police will ask questions and follow procedure. End quote. Schwartzbach insisted that this wasn't the only evidence against Blake that the LAPD had been sloppy with. In addition to improperly bagging Blake's clothes, the police had towed Blake's car by its front wheels instead of on a flatbed truck, allowing evidence to shift around inside during transit. 
He alleged they also mishandled the dumpster that the murder weapon was discovered in. The dumpster had been located at the scene of the crime, but it was moved. When Detective Steve Aguchi testified on January 10th, he explained that police relocated the dumpster to a landfill to more easily unpack it. They didn't want to have to reload all of the garbage after their search. Schwartzbach suggested that the manner in which they conducted their search tampered with any evidence that might have been found on the dumpster or gun. Eguchi rebutted that when they found the gun, it was coated in oil. Shelley Samuels asked if he thought the shooter had applied the oil to the gun or if it had collected the oil in the dumpster. Eguchi stated that nothing else in the dumpster had that kind of oil on it. He believed the shooter applied it to the gun to obscure any forensic evidence. There was no way to recover fingerprints or DNA, whether they had searched the dumpster at the scene or in the landfill. This testimony was a double-edged sword for Samuels. The idea that the shooter, who the state alleged was Robert Blake, not only planned the murder, but also planned to obfuscate possible evidence, was key to proving the special circumstances of lying in wait. However, it also meant that Samuels had no physical evidence to place the murder weapon in Blake's hand. On January 12th, Shelley Samuels was dealt a serious blow. One of her own witnesses testified that the likelihood Robert Blake personally fired the gun that killed Bonnie was basically nil. Stephen Dowell, an impartial employee of the LAPD Scientific Unit, analyzed Blake's clothing for gunshot residue. As we mentioned, he discovered only trace amounts, not enough to make him the shooter. Dowell went so far as to state that the lead particles on Blake's clothing might not have come from a gun at all. Samuels was quick to employ damage control, asking, quote, Is there anything about your tests that can exclude the possibility that the defendant fired the gun? Dowell said that he couldn't exclude that possibility, but also added that the test for gunshot residue merely found lead particles that might come from many other sources, even batteries. Luckily for Samuels, the jury was scheduled to take a field trip to the crime scene the following day. She was glad the judge had agreed to bust the jury to Vitello's, both in the daylight and at night. She knew how important it was to make sure they could see and understand exactly how the murder had occurred. In the meantime, she had a chance to regroup. If she wanted to maintain her winning streak and find justice for Bonnie, Shelley Samuels needed to spend the rest of the case hammering home to the jury that Robert Blake solicited multiple people to kill Bonnie Lee Bakley. Even if the state couldn't directly place the gun in his hand, Samuels knew she could prove that Blake wanted Bonnie dead. On January 20th, she called Blake's private investigator, William Welch, to the stand. Welch had spent 20 years working for the LAPD and over half that time in the Homicide Division. After he retired in 1985, he started working as a private investigator and took Blake on as a client starting in 1988. Welch testified that in the fall of 1999, shortly after Blake learned Bonnie was pregnant, 
the actor reached out. Apparently, Blake said, quote, we're going to take her to a doctor and abort her, and if that doesn't work, we're going to whack her. Samuels asked Welch to describe his reaction to this statement. He was shocked and told Blake he was out of his mind. He said unequivocally that he wasn't going to do that, and he hoped Blake wouldn't either. Welch added that when they spoke the next day, it seemed like he'd talked Blake out of his plan. Instead, Blake later instructed the PI to dig up as much dirt as possible on Bonnie. He was going to expose her as a con artist and send her away. Welch alleged that Blake even suggested planting drugs in Bonnie's hotel room. He wanted Welch to contact his LAPD friends and have them swoop in. Again, Welch felt this was a bad idea and talked Blake out of it. On cross-examination, Gerald Schwartzback asked Welch if he ever reported to police that Blake made threats against his late wife. He had not. He felt like he had convinced Blake not to move forward with his plan. Schwartzback asked how long it took Welch to inform police of the whacking conversation after Bonnie's death. About four months. Welch didn't have an explanation as to why he had waited so long, other than being unhappy with his friends in the robbery homicide division at the time. Schwartzback scoffed. A woman's killer was on the loose, and Welch, a veteran officer, former head of the homicide division, had let a petty grudge get in the way of justice. Welch admitted he had been a little hard-headed. Samuel's next witnesses were paramount to proving her case to the jury. She brought the two stuntmen to the stand, 64-year-old Gary McClarty, followed by 68-year-old Ron Duffy Hamilton. Gary had come to the police on May 14, 2001, 10 days after Bonnie's murder, to testify how Robert Blake had offered him $10,000 to kill her two months prior. In his initial conversations with police, he was very clear on the specifics of their meeting, laying out the afternoon step by step. He had even provided the details of what Blake had eaten for lunch at Dupar's, a grilled cheese sandwich, fries, and a Sprite. But in the four years since that statement, McClarty had lost some of his mental acuity due to heavy drug abuse over the last three decades. He wasn't able to accurately remember many parts of his original testimony. When Schwartzback asked him if he met with Blake on March 19, 2001, McClarty responded that he didn't recall the day. Schwartzback asked if he remembered the month. No. The year? McClarty hesitantly answered, 2001? Trying to get him to commit to specifics, Schwartzback asked if the meeting had occurred early or late in the year, but McClarty did not recall. To further demonstrate his mental deterioration, Schwartzback asked McClarty, quote, while this case was pending and while you were under the influence of drugs, you thought the police were trying to get you? McClarty said yes. Schwartzback continued, quote, while you were under the influence of drugs, you actually thought people were tunneling under your house. Again, McClarty agreed. 
He also admitted that during that time, he believed his house, car, and cell phone were bugged, satellite dishes were tracking his movements, his family was conspiring against him, that lead detective Ronald Ito was after him, that he saw alien spaceships, and that he could read other people's minds. Schwartzbach punctuated the exchange by asking McClarty when he had entered a rehab program for drugs at the Glendale Adventist Hospital. McClarty replied that he got clean at the end of the summer in 2004 in preparation for this trial. Coming up, Shelley Samuels tries to restore credibility to her key witnesses after Gerald Schwartzbach's attacks. Now back to the story. In February of 2005, the criminal proceedings against 72-year-old Robert Blake were in full swing. The state had produced over 60 witnesses to testify to the jury what exactly occurred on the night of Bonnie Lee Bakley's murder on May 4, 2001, as well as during the investigation that followed. Unfortunately, Deputy DA Shelley Samuels' first key witness had been destroyed by defense attorney Gerald Schwartzbach on the stand. Samuels' next witness, 68-year-old Duffy Hamilton, didn't fare much better. His testimony was hampered by the fact that for seven months during the 2001 investigation, Duffy had insisted that he had nothing to do with Robert Blake. It wasn't until he was served with a grand jury summons to testify that he actually admitted any connection to the actor. Once that happened, the details he provided were the same as McClarty's, except that Blake had offered Duffy even more money for the deed, $100,000. According to Duffy, Blake wanted to be on the scene when Bonnie died so that he could watch. Duffy warned him that there were sure to be cops on the scene, asking him questions. Blake coolly replied, quote, Don't worry about that. I'm an actor. Shelley Samuels asked Duffy to explain why he had lied to police in 2001. He said he knew what happened to snitches. He'd be a dead duck. But Schwartzbach tried to discredit this in his cross-examination. How could the jury be sure that he was lying then and not lying now? Duffy shrugged dismissively. They couldn't be. But Schwartzbach continued his attack, asking Duffy if he was a drug user. Yes, he had used drugs on occasion. Schwartzbach asked Duffy if he was high on drugs when he summoned police to his home in late 1999, alleging that 20 armed men were on his property. Duffy could not recall. Schwartzbach asked if the police located any men with weapons at his house that night. Again, he did not recall. Schwartzbach then presented a police report from the night of the incident. When police arrived at Duffy's Lucerne Valley home, they found only Duffy Hambleton there, half naked and holding a rifle, which he pointed at the police. The report also stated that he was high on methamphetamine. On the stand, Duffy continued to deny the incident ever took place. In her redirect of Duffy, Samuels tried to restore his credibility by asking if he had instructed Blake to purchase a prepaid phone card in March of 2001. He had. 
Duffy wanted to be able to stay in communication with Blake, but considering the topic of discussion was murder, he wanted to make it harder for the police to track the record of their calls. Duffy testified that on May 5th, the day after the murder, Blake had called him seeking reassurance that the calls on the card couldn't be traced. In fact, police had been able to piece together a record of their conversations. The state's next witness, lead detective Ron Ito, described on the stand how they had been able to track down the phone card from Duffy's grand jury testimony. Police located the 7-Eleven convenience store that Blake purchased the phone card from. On March 11, 2001, the date of purchase, the store had only sold three cards. Police subpoenaed records from all of them and discovered that one of the cards was used by Robert Blake. He made 126 calls from March 12th to May 5th, and 56 of the calls were between Blake and Duffy. The records also showed three calls between Blake and McClarty. In Detective Ito's professional opinion, this was hard evidence that backed up the two stuntmen's solicitation claims. Shelley Samuels resumed her position at the prosecutor's table, satisfied that Ito's testimony was enough to restore the trustworthiness of her other key witnesses. Even if Duffy and McClarty were drug users, the phone card records weren't the product of meth psychosis. They proved Blake had been calling them. She rested her case. The job of a defense attorney is not to prove their client's innocence, but rather to point out the flaws in the prosecutor's case. The onus is on the state to prove someone is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And Gerald Schwartzbach would spend the final weeks of the trial seeding as much doubt as possible. Schwartzbach had already pointed out what he considered to be grave missteps in the case, towing the car on two wheels, relocating the dumpster, placing Blake's clothes in an open cardboard box, and then leaving the box in a squad car for several days. As lead investigator, he placed the blame at Ron Ito's feet. On the stand, Schwartzbach eviscerated Ito for these mistakes and more. He asked Ito to describe how fingerprints were collected from Robert Blake's Dodge Stealth, the car Bonnie was sitting in when she'd been shot. Ito had superglued the outside of the car to test for fingerprints, a common forensic procedure. He explained that when superglue is heated, the vapors react with the oily residue left behind by skin, revealing latent prints. Schwartzbach asked why he had done this. Ito wanted to know everyone who had touched the car to reveal any unidentified suspects. The attorney asked how many sets of prints were collected from the vehicle. Ito didn't know the exact number off the top of his head. It was a lot. But he had collected prints from Blake, the witnesses on scene, and the police and paramedics present so they could be compared and eliminated. And had they discovered any prints on the vehicle that they couldn't account for? Ito sighed heavily and admitted that there were six latent prints that they had been unable to identify. However, they were all on the driver's side of the car, and Bonnie's shooter had most likely been positioned on the passenger side. Schwartzbach countered, 
quote, but it's possible that those prints came from Bonnie's killer, her unidentified killer. Ido conceded that while unlikely, it was possible. On February 15, 2005, after 68 witnesses and 28 days of proceedings, Deputy District Attorney Shelley Samuels had presented her case and Schwartzbach geared up for his own presentation. Though he had been able to score several points throughout the cross-examination of the state's witnesses, he now had a chance to take complete control of the narrative. Schwartzbach called Karen and Cole McClarty to the stand, stuntman Gary McClarty's wife and 31-year-old son. Cole alleged that Blake had contacted Gary, had offered him $10,000, but it was to punch someone out, not kill his wife. Cole alleged that his father approached him in March of 2001, telling him that Blake had a problem with the stalker and wanted Gary to take care of it. Cole testified that his father offered him $3,000 to help. He would drop Cole off, Cole would punch the stalker in the face, then Gary would pick him up and they'd drive off. Cole scoffed, quote, I guess he was going to keep the rest of the seven grand for himself. Karen testified that her husband had been a heavy cocaine user for nearly 30 years and suffered from paranoid delusions as a result. She said, quote, he accused me of having his motorcycle bugged. He thinks his telephones are bugged all the time. In fact, when I call, he says, you know this is all being taped. He also believed that satellites were tracking him and that he can read people's minds. She ended her statement with a particularly damning confession, stating that when they talked about the murder case and trial, quote, Gary told me possibly he might lie. I just couldn't live with myself if I let him do that. After casting doubt on McClarty, Schwartzbach gave Duffy Hamilton the same treatment. He called one of Duffy's neighbors, Donna Sharon, to the stand. She classified him as a heavy methamphetamine user, stating, quote, he kept meth in a dining room china hutch, in kitchen cabinets, on a medicine shelf, and even in a bowl on the dining room table beside some jelly beans. Donna classified his behavior as paranoid and reported that he frequently hallucinated. Once he told her about the tree people who were trying to get him and dressed like sagebrush and Joshua trees to spy on him. Gerald Schwartzbach was adamant that he didn't want his client to take the stand. He had seen by now that Robert Blake was a bit of a hothead and didn't want to give Samuels the opportunity to get under his skin. Instead, Schwartzbach presented the jury with a clip from Blake's 2020 interview with Barbara Walters, talking about his daughter with the victim, Rosie. In the tape, Blake called her the gift of the century. He said, quote, I always thought my life was a home run. Now, at the end of the trail, I was going to get to hit the ball out of the universe. It's all about Rosie. It's always been about Rosie, the greatest gift in the world. And I'm going to try to mess it up by being selfish. And with that, the defense rested. 
In Shelley Samuels' closing arguments, she stressed the colossal motive that Robert Blake had to kill Bonnie Lee Bakley. Blake considered himself to be a man with street smarts, yet he had fallen victim to a two-bit con artist. He was disgusted by her lonely heart scam and the way she lived her life. Yes, he cared deeply for his daughter, Rosie, but he loathed Rosie's mother. Had he divorced Bonnie, he would have lost his gift of the century. So he got rid of the wife he hated to keep the child he loved. And now the jury had to hold him accountable. Samuel stressed, you must find him guilty. Gerald Schwartzbach's statements were short and to the point. The state had failed to put the murder weapon in Blake's hand. They had failed to produce any evidence that Blake fired a gun the night Bonnie was shot. The state had failed to provide a single piece of forensic evidence to connect Robert Blake to this crime. He reminded them, a defendant in a criminal action is presumed to be innocent until the contrary is proven. The state had failed to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, and therefore, the jury must return a verdict of not guilty. There were a lot of angles for the jury to consider. The state couldn't place the murder weapon in Blake's hand, but the defense couldn't produce a credible alibi. Robert Blake's deep love for his daughter was both a reason for and against committing murder. They tried to piece together exactly what had happened between the time Bonnie and Blake left Vitello's and Blake pounded on Sean Stanek's door. Blake's credit card had been swiped at 9.23 p.m. The 911 call registered at 9.40 p.m. What happened in those 17 minutes? Was it enough time for Blake to have done as he described? Walk to the car, realize he'd left his gun, go get it, walk back to the car, then start knocking on doors in a panic. If the timeline didn't account for all that, had Blake done something else in those 17 minutes? Like shoot his wife and cover his tracks? At 2.30 p.m. on March 16, 2005, the jury filed back into the courtroom ready to read their verdict. Not one of them looked at 72-year-old Robert Blake. It had been exactly 1,461 days since the murder when the jury foreman stood up to read the findings. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Robert Blake, not guilty. They had been in a deadlock 11 to 1 on the matter of solicitation, the judge dismissed those charges as well. Robert Blake was a free man. Out front of the courthouse, a sea of reporters and spectators greeted Blake, accompanied by Gerald Schwartzbach. They watched and applauded as Blake cut the ankle monitor bracelet from his leg. He quipped to the crowd, quote, if you wanna know how to go through $10 million in five years, I can tell you. When one of the reporters asked him who he honestly thought shot Bonnie, he gave a tough guy accented, shut up. 
Holly Garan, Bonnie's 25-year-old daughter, wept in the courtroom after the verdict was read. She vowed justice for her mother, saying, I would like him to suffer. Garan filed a wrongful death suit against Robert Blake. Named as co-plaintiffs were Bonnie's three other children, including Rosie Blake. In November of 2005, Blake was back in the courtroom for the civil trial. This time, the jury found him guilty and awarded the Bakley children $30 million in damages. This amount was later reduced to $15 million. Blake eventually filed for bankruptcy to pay them. It's important to note that the burden of proof in a civil trial is not as high as in a criminal trial. The civil trial still showed no evidence that placed the murder weapon in Blake's hand on the night of the murder. But once again, the plaintiff's attorneys pointed out that the amount of motive that Blake had was overwhelming. In addition, Earl Caldwell's wife testified at the civil trial that he wasn't with her in San Mateo the night of the murder, and she thought he might have had something to do with Bonnie's death. Schwartzbach felt that the jury in the civil case saw Blake as too close to O.J. Simpson, who had also been acquitted of criminal charges but ordered to pay civil damages. He said, quote, they think they're sending a message out to the world. Just because you're famous, you can't get away with it. Now that you've heard the case against him, decide for yourself, did Robert Blake get away with murder? Or is he the victim of his own celebrity? Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with a new case to explore. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Not Guilty is written by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>